I'm unapologetically fly. No wonder why, that's just my attitude. Yeah. Okay, hey, that's just my. Uh, 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 come on. Hi guys, welcome to Iconic.com. I'm here with a very special guest today, Dr. Peter McCullough. You would have seen him on obviously Joe, Joe Rogan's podcast, but many of the others in the alternative media at the moment. Um, I think he's been on InfoWars as well. Um, Dr. Peter, thank you for taking the time to speak to me. I know you're very, very busy and you've had a long day at work and see it's getting dark out there as well. So I appreciate your time. Um, I don't want to go over the same things because people can watch the, the other podcasts um, mm-hmm. to get the information on your background and people can do their research into that. If I had mentioned what is happening now to you two years ago in December of uh, 2019, what would you have said to me? I, I wouldn't believe you. I, I didn't see this coming as a practicing internal medicine and cardiology physician here uh, in Dallas, Texas. I just finished today in the office. Uh, you know, my life was uh, going pretty well. And, uh, you know, we are making great advances in heart disease. I study heart and kidney disease. Today, I saw a patient, for instance, uh, with, uh, with both heart and kidney disease, had the kidney transplant. I'm, you know, back to my usual uh, uh, area of interest. I never would have guessed my life would have been turned upside down and dominated by a highly communicable respiratory disease. And I spend about half my time seeing patients. The other half uh, in academics. And I'm uh, an author, I'm an editor, and uh, now a frequent news commentator. And so my, my commentary and analysis has been sought by uh, the U.S. Senate, uh, multiple state senates, actually multiple countries. And uh, I find myself on the news talking to America about COVID-19. So in many ways, in the last two years, I've completed a infectious disease fellowship in COVID-19. I think I've looked as, ma- as many reports uh, and analyzed as much data as anybody in the world. It must be strange for you for going from someone who works day to day in a normal job doing what you're doing to suddenly being on Joe Rogan's show, Infowars, these strange kind of places, really, that aren't really of your world. How has that felt for you and, ma- and your immediate family seeing you in, in these strange environments? You know, it's almost uh, this idea of getting thrust into the public light uh, is uh, extraordinary. My wife has been um, very patient and I think very understanding. Uh, my kids are split. My, I think my daughter understands something big is going on. Um, I think my son is, is quite skeptical. He's, uh, he's a medical student and he's uh, indoctr- indoctrinated and uh, he's skeptical of uh, my views here. But you know, I, in my mind, I see things clearly. And I've talked to doctors in my circle and we've gone through the exercise of uh, asking ourselves, what if we're wrong? Uh, what if we're wrong? Uh, in the 500 doctors in the United States that v- believe very differently than a million doctors who are, are part of the mainstream medical establishment, what if we're wrong? So if, if I'm wrong in my views on COVID-19, these are the errors that I've made, is that I've treated patients uh, to the best of my ability with medications that were safe but I treated them unnecessarily because COVID-19 is not treatable, including the monoclonal antibodies. It's simply not treatable. Uh, and I have basically expended a lot of effort treating an untreatable disease out of excessive concern. And then the second mistake I have made uh, theoretically is that I was excessively concerned about a vaccine or set of vaccines that are in fact perfectly safe and perfectly 
efficacious. That's if I'm wrong. Those errors are not large errors. They, they really are not. But what if I'm right? What if I'm right? What if COVID-19, in fact, was always treatable? And what if I'm right that the monoclonal antibodies, in fact, are beneficial and they can be used in combination with drugs? And what if I'm right that 85% of the deaths that occurred were all avoidable? The same thing for the hospitalizations, the misery of the hospital for millions and millions of individuals worldwide. What if I'm right about that assertion? What if I'm right that the vaccines, in fact, are not safe? They're not safe at all. What if I'm right in that record numbers of people have lost their lives after volunteering for these vaccines? Some have been uh, temporarily damaged and thousands are now permanently disabled. What if I'm right about that? And what if I'm right that the vaccines actually don't even work against COVID and patients get COVID anyway? So it doesn't spare any of the misery that we talked about to begin with. If I am right and the orthodoxy is wrong, this is going to be one of the largest stories in medical history where a small number of doctors came out to actually have the right view and a large number of doctors are going to have to do a lot of soul searching for a long period of time. As this goes on, it seems to confirm more and more along the lines that you are right. And I think it would be hard push for even someone that layman's like me to see that you're not right in the fact that these, these experimental vaccines and COVID is something other than that's been mainly reported. I think that's kind of, I think most people do understand that even if they don't want to look at it. Do you find that these other doctors, not including the 500, and I'm sure there's many more, do kind of see what you're saying, do maybe even believe what you're saying, but are too scared to say so, or even too scared to, to digest it and acknowledge it in their own mind. It's too frightening of a um, circumstance to kind of, kind of come to terms with. I think it's the latter. I think it's the latter. I, I don't think it's the former. I don't hear a lot of chatter where doctors are saying, boy, I, I really believe what Dr. McCullough does, but I'm too scared to say anything because you know what? There'd be chatter. There's no chatter. I don't think they can actually, in their minds, really come to reconciliation to what's going on. Let me give you an example. I saw a patient today, probably about your age. He's under age 40. Uh, he has very complex adult congenital heart disease. He had multiple surgeries, and he's doing well now. And I can tell you, he's gone through two cardiologists that have told him he should take the vaccine. Now he's under age 40, COVID-19 for him will be a very, very mild illness, very manageable. In fact, he may have already had it. He's not sure. So I ended up checking some antibodies to find out. But what I'm telling you is that he's already had his chest open. He's had his heart open. And if he does develop myocarditis, it's going to be a complicated course already. He is set up for arrhythmias. He is set up for conduction system abnormalities, and he's set up for cardiac failure and death. That's my judgment as a cardiologist. I'm a board-certified cardiologist. Under no circumstances would I tell a cardiac patient who's young to take a vaccine that has official warnings on it from our US FDA that it causes heart damage. You, you can see how, how, how just absolutely stupefying this entire paradigm is. And this young man waited months for this visit. 
you know, he wanted to just tell his story and just get an understanding that, no, you know, the, the vaccine isn't for you. It's okay to pass on the vaccine. And in fact, if you ever got COVID-19, uh, probably no treatments needed, or if you did, you get some modest treatment. You know, this comes up now on a daily basis. Patients are losing confidence in their doctors. How can, like, we had this with the situation in the UK, and I'm sure you had it there with the masks, and had on the, on the side of the box, does not prevent spreading or, or catching COVID-19. The flimsy blue mask that we all know are probably created in sweatshops somewhere and, and dropped on the floor and leave a, like a, a, a gap at the side. We all quite clearly know that, but it says it on the box. These ones, yeah. It says it on the box um, that they don't stop COVID-19. As you were saying, the FDA have even come out and said that that doesn't, um, but mandating this is wrong and also it doesn't stop it spreading not everybody should get this they shouldn't mandate this how can they come out and say it but then still the individual practitioner is actually doing the opposite the same in workplaces why are they not listening to the governing bodies that they should be listening to it's almost like there's a cognitive block there it's bizarre there's a cognitive block the biggest cognitive block actually is on asymptomatic testing there are legions of schools, employers, travel businesses that are actually doing routine testing. Uh, in the United States, they do antigen or they do PCR testing. In the EU, they do what's called lateral flow testing or RAT testing. None of this testing has ever been studied or ever been cleared by any regulatory agency for routine testing in people with no symptoms. None of them. World Health, World, World Health Organization doesn't endorse it. Our US CDC does not endorse it. Why would these entities even consider this? Why would our Occupational Health and Safety Commission actually ever even suggest this? Now it's been struck down in the courts and now it's being battled. So why is there an overreach? That's the point. Why is there an overreach? Why were there mandates by employers for vaccines before the government ever considered mandates? Why would there be an overreach? Is it driven by fear? Uh, is it driven by groupthink? Is it driven by uh, some type of, uh, of financial incentives that are coming down through channels that we don't know about to these businesses? But something's going on. Uh, we, we never have businesses overreach a government rule and even be kind of be more stringent than what a, the, the rule is. You know what I mean? We generally just follow the, the city code. We follow the rules. Well, why are we going beyond that? Uh, masks included. Uh, I think we need to get to the root of why these things are happening. It's bizarre, isn't it? I've got a book behind me called Watiko and it's about a mind virus. And it's, it's similar. Watiko is something to do with the, the cognitive block in the brain of not being able to see past these things. And it's, it is almost like there is a real, like a virus of the mind that's going on here. I mean, you talk about so many different things and I don't want to unpack more, but the asymptomatic spreading is something that I've been looking into. So let's talk about just that quickly. So there's no such thing as asymptomatic spreading from person to person. Is that what, is that, am I right in saying that? It's never been proven where people are truly asymptomatic. Uh, it, you know, if true asymptomatic spread happened, it would be the first time in medical history. It doesn't happen with any other organism. So to basically um, theorize or state or presuppose that asymptomatic spread is a major route of spread, uh, that was a giant leap of faith made by people in public health, that they departed from everything we know about infectious diseases and said, this infectious disease 
is the first infectious disease in history that has a completely different principle of spread. And so how did that come up? How did that become embraced? Then there were modeling studies. There were studies saying, listen, well, we're guessing that 30 to 50% of the spread is asymptomatic. So therefore we're gonna model that the outbreak is gonna happen this way. In the United States, we had what's called the Murray models out of University of Washington. They were notoriously terrible models because they were operating on a false assumption. Uh, last year here in Dallas, Texas, uh, the US Army Corps of Engineers came in and took over our convention center and they built a giant army hospital. They had thousands of cots, ventilators, IV bags, medics. They were all standing at the ready. And I published uh, an opinion editorial in the journal, The Hill, saying, listen, I'm an epidemiologist. I'm, I'm studying the spread of this illness. It doesn't spread this way. I said, we'll never use one of these cots. It doesn't spread asymptomatically. People have to have symptoms in order to spread it. And so finally, we had two good papers, one by Cal, one by Madewell, that basically disproved asymptomatic spread. Uh, this, asymptomatic spread is a very, very important concept. That means if people are just mindful of symptoms, that means they could go anywhere without wearing a mask. They could always go into the workplace without wearing a mask. We just have to be reasonable with respect to our school policies. If someone gets sick, get them, put, a, put a mask on and then get out of the congregate setting and go home. If a child is sick at home, don't go to school. Same thing with employees. If we just had flexible policies for students and employees, it, it could act and respect the principle that people only spread it symptomatically, we would, that would be a giant advance. And it's just based on the science. And you couldn't, they couldn't possibly lock everyone down if they, they didn't have that principle in place. There's the first time ever we're, we're locking down people that are not sick. We're being told we're sick from a PCR test that if you cycle above, I believe it's 28 cycles, it gives you all sorts of fake positives. Um, so you're not sick. The test isn't really telling you whether you're sick or not. And they're assuming you're sick from something that's not possibly could, could be, couldn't be, but you have no symptoms of illness. It's like me saying I've gone for a haircut and I come back with the same hair and then I go, no, but I went for a haircut. There was, there was, you didn't happen. It's bizarre, isn't it? It's very, very odd. That's another cognitive block there, isn't it? There's so much to unpack it. Something I wanted to speak to you about was antibody dependent enhancement. Now that's something that really concerns me the more these boosters come out. Can you talk to me about your concerns about around that? Antibody enhancement means that the antibodies raised by a vaccine in some way would backfire in the body and then allow more viral invasion and, and a more serious infection when indeed exposed to the virus. And uh, you know, the only thing I've seen that kind of fits that definition is the explosion of cases that we see after shot number one of the messenger RNA vaccines. Now that was shown in the Pfizer briefing booklet as reported from Israel and France. And it is true, there is a, is a increased risk of COVID-19 after the first shot compared to placebo. And then it goes down after the second shot. And then there was a paper by Li Yu from China showing that uh, the early antibodies that are raised in the vaccines potentially could have an interaction with the ACE2 receptor and actually allow that to happen. So theoretically it was known as possible. But what we haven't seen is we haven't seen examples where those who are vaccinated have more severe illness. Uh, we, we clearly see transmission among the vaccinated. Uh, we don't see appreciable reductions in the incidence of binary disease. But what we do see among vaccinated probably influenced greatly on because of differential testing and the lack of randomization, but we do see uh, an effect size that's favorable towards reduction in hospitalization. And then we do see a reduction for those hospitalized, we see a reduction in the risk for death. 
uh, with COVID-19 uh, from the uh, uh, vaccinated to the unvaccinated. And the best paper to quote on that is by 1040 et al in JAMA. And of those vaccinated in the hospital, the mortality is between six and 7%. And those unvaccinated in the hospital, the mortality rate is between uh, eight and 9%. Uh, and so there is a difference. It, it's not a massive difference, but from a clinical perspective, there, there is a difference there. And you, know, you can do that relative calculation on what the risk reduction is, but let's say it's a 30% risk reduction. You know, that, that is meaningful. Uh, is that is that a blockbuster? Is that is the vaccine saving every person from dying of COVID-19? In no way. Um, there's another analysis from Cohn and colleagues from the Veterans Administration. Over 700,000 individuals. Now, this, the, the, here the converse of mortality is given. It's called survival, and so the survival uh, differential of those uh, between those who took the vaccine and those didn't who had tested positive. Uh, again, no randomization, and there's also a lot of selection bias there. But the difference over age uh, 65 is a 12-point difference in those survival curves, let's say from you know, 94 down to 82%, uh, about four months after the vaccine. However, under age 65, that mortality benefit is slimmed to only 1%. So we have uh, two good studies in the United States, multi-center, large data sets, not randomized, suggesting age under 65, and I think that's where most of the discussion is on the vaccines, that the absolute mortality benefit is somewhere between one and 2%. And that when I told Joe Rogan that, he, I showed him the data, he looked at it, he goes, he goes that looks pretty small. And I said, yeah, I think, I, I think that's what we're talking about. It's a pretty small benefit. And you're weighing up against the obviously negatives of the possible long-term effects that we don't know from these vaccines at the moment and the cumulative effects. Boris Johnson came out the other day, I think it was yesterday in the UK, and he's changed his wording from the unvaccinated meaning completely unvaccinated to, to unboosted he's talking about now so he's saying 90 percent of the people in icu in the uk are unboosted he was saying unvaccinated before he's saying unboosted now they're changing the the, the meanings of things it's like 1984 they're changing the meaning so people can't keep up my partner works in the nhs she actually gave her notice in today because she refuses to take this um and she's been there for 11 years and she's trying to explain them that you do understand that that though you've had your two vaccines, that you will be no longer considered vaccinated if you don't get your boosters. What is going on here? There was a report that came across the doctor's uh, news wires today that um, that boosters may only last have an, an immune effect for 10 weeks, for instance. There's another report out today from Germany that 94 percent of those with COVID-19 uh, in German hospitals are fully vaccinated. I mean, we need to come to some conclusion. Uh, I think relatively soon that the vaccines are simply not working. Uh, they're not working well enough to deploy as a public health measure. And I think if we can do that, then we can easily say, listen, let's drop vaccine mandates and let's pause the programs. I think the program should be stopped. Uh, we know in the United Kingdom, the evidence-based consulting group uh, led by Dr. Tesla, we did a report to the MHRA from the yellow card system, and it was clear uh, the vaccines are causing great harm to people in the United Kingdom and that the program should be shut down and analyzed for safety. Uh, we're at the point where we have the Omicron outbreak. It's clear the Omicron variant is not covered by the vaccines. We had reports from the United States, uh, Denmark, and South Africa showing over 70% of people with Omicron are fully vaccinated fully vaccinated. I mean, you know, within that time window where they should have immunity. And it's clear 
that the Omicron has escaped vaccine immunity. It's also escaped natural immunity. People who are naturally immune can have Omicron. So it happened to me. Um, I had the alpha variant in 2020. Uh, Omicron uh, basically spread in my household over the holidays. And I felt a little warm for about a day. And I used uh, bob, uh, pop, dilute povidone iodine uh, nasal irrigation because I knew the virus was in my nose. I did the irrigation and honestly, the fever went away within uh, probably less than an hour and I felt great. My sinuses were cleared up and that's all it was. So Omicron was basically the mildest little immune uh, re-challenge that anybody could have. In a recent paper by Khan and colleagues from the Africa Research Institute, a uh, small sample, but very reassuring. When someone gets Omicron, they clearly get you know robust antibodies to the Omicron variant, but they also get back immunity to the Delta variant. So uh, I anticipate Omicron will become hyperdominant for those reasons. Every Omicron person then in a, a, a victim basically closes the door on Delta and also Omicron uh, replicates 70 times faster than Delta, 70 times. So it can out replicate Delta and it can close the immunologic door on Delta infecting that next person. So it's, it's, it's very interesting. I just submitted my uh, report to America, America Loud Talk Radio, the McCullough Report, going over uh, the citations on this. So you can follow me online if you go to America Loud Talk Radio. Uh, and that will come into production uh, this weekend. And um, it's an absolutely fascinating situation. Although uh, many of us are very tired. We've worked endlessly for two years, haven't taken a break. 500 doctors taking care of the whole United States for COVID-19. We're exhausted. Uh, my phone is blowing up with cases, but I've tried to help every patient I possibly could. And, uh, you know, historians will record what happens here. And uh, if, if, and, and I'm either going to be very wrong on, on issues or I'm going to be very right. And I can tell you when things have changed, I've been the first to tell America and the world that things have changed. So we had great natural immunity through the wild type, alpha, beta, gamma, and delta. But it's clear with Omicron, natural immunity has been broken. So I was the first to tell America on national TV, listen, this is the first time that it's possible to get COVID-19 a second time. And literally within a week or so, it happened to me. So I, I, I experienced it firsthand. And fortunately, it's a very uh, mild illness, uh, is very brief. So Omicron is mild and brief. I've had much worse common colds than that. And in fact, some people have told me it feels much like taking a booster. It's like taking a COVID-19 booster shot, except for it's way better because one gets complete immunity to Omicron and actually Delta, uh, of, of which no booster could ever offer. So what keeps you going? Because you must be exhausted even just talking about these things and all these numbers in your head. I don't know how you sleep at night, how you get any sleep other than just knackering yourself out completely. How, what keeps you going with this? What's pulling you forward? We've, you've done the shows. You've helped so many people on Joe Rogan. I mean, so many people have seen that. You're in the, the um, COVID um, Revealed series, which is a fantastic series. What keeps you going? Because you must be exhausted with it all. Well, what we have going on in the UK, United States, and all over the world, actually, is what's called lockstep, where all the countries are doing the same thing. There's a narrative. There's a narrative. And the narrative is loaded with multiple false statements that are put out by people in position of authority. So by definition, it's propaganda. The narrative is loaded with propaganda in order to drive fear, suffering, isolation, hardship, hospitalization, and death. And that narrative, um, I think, uh, is trying to achieve mass repeated vaccination 
of people all over the world, largely featuring genetic vaccines, which are gene transfer technology programs. That's the narrative. And so what keeps me going is there are very few individuals that are actually able to give a counter narrative or another interpretation. In the United States, it's very few that could actually get on national TV and provide a counter narrative. And, and yet there's a small group. It's, it's myself and Steve Alexander and Steve Smith and, and, uh, um, and, and Jay Bhattacharya and Scott Atlas, who was in the White House and actually uh, Paul Alexander was in the White House too. Uh, Ray Askewi, Harvey Risch. Um, uh, there is a small group, Kirk Milhone, who joined from Hawaii, a very small group, Pierre Corey, Paul Merrick from the FLCC. Uh, we're talking, you know, probably less than 12 individuals that um, are able to just give a counter narrative to try to provide some full, uh, fair balance. So actually today, uh, another one of our uh, members of our group, Robert Malone, uh, who is involved in the clinical development of the messenger RNA vaccines, he was in the man cave with Joe Rogan today and underwent another session uh, with Joe Rogan. So we'll see what comes out uh, of that. You know, every word with Joe Rogan was dissected into translations and, 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 and uh, you know, play by play. It's, it's amazing. Uh, he has a very big audience as a podcaster and a young audience. Now, older people, I don't know who he is. Uh, the biggest thing I've done, though, uh, is actually not Joe Rogan. It's, it's actually uh, Daystar. Uh, Daystar is the largest uh, Christian TV network across the world. Its, it's headquarters are in Dallas, Fort Worth. Um, uh, Joe Rogan has about three employees in Austin, Texas. Daystar has about 400. And uh, in their center, they have multiple sets. And uh, they broadcast uh, Christian TV to 200 million uh, home, you know, households across the world, multiple countries. And they estimate the first time I went on, the, the very first time, 600 million views. And they did reruns. And we got to 1.7 billion. And then I went on again a second time with uh, Ben Marble. And he's the leader of MyFreeDoctor.com. And so that again generated. So I've actually hit with over 1.7 billion. Rogan was interesting because Rogan, it was just proportional uh, that I had uh, set all time new records for listenership for Roger. We beat Elon Musk. And, uh, you know, I told people, I said, well, what does Elon Musk have to talk about? You know, a, a Tesla? Uh, I think right now people want to talk about COVID and they want the truth. And so uh, it's, it's, it's interesting. There is an absolute thirst after two years of this. People want the truth. So in, in our circles, uh, the doctors who are collaborating on, uh, you know, advancing the science on early treatment, vaccine safety and efficacy, uh, we are individually going into cities in the United States and we're holding public seminars. We typically have one for the doctors. We have one for lawmakers and we move into a big public program. They're organized by grassroots organizations. We have between 500 and 5,000 people attend. Uh, I have one in Phoenix coming up in a few weeks with former cabinet member, uh, Ben Carson, we have 48,000 tickets sold. Um, I'm telling you, Americans are hungry to find out what's going on. And I just show the data, just like I'm doing tonight. I just show the data. I, it's just, it's a grand rounds PowerPoint slide. It, it basically is the same uh, CME or continuing medical education accredited lecture that I gave uh, as the closing lecture for the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. It's medical grand rounds for the public and they want to know. And their questions are endless. 
And the reason why this is all happening is our public health agencies have tried to keep the public in the dark on everything. Our public health agencies have given no critical updates on early treatments, none. They should have been happening once a month. They've given no updates on advances in in-hospital treatment, none. They've given no analysis of vaccine safety and efficacy. Uh, people in the UK, United States, if they turn on TV and they listen to the, the National Health Service or the US FDA or CDC, uh, 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 MHRA, they actually are given no hard information on vaccine safety and efficacy. And so at this point in time, the public has actually lost trust in their agencies and they're going elsewhere to learn, including important podcasts like yours. They are. And we, that's why we appreciate your time so much, because this information is, is and the trust that you give us to put this information out as well is incredibly important because there's nowhere else to go with it with this stuff at the moment and that's why i think joe rogan did an amazing job of just having you on i know uh, dr maloney i think he got banned from twitter today um which is, is we all get banned eventually um one thing i wanted to i wanted to come back to talk about um faith as well like um just before we end in, in about 15 minutes time but um uh, but before we go there one question i did want to ask you but Maloney's talked about this and um something i brought up about the lipid nanoparticles and how they do cum- possibly from what I can, under, my limited understanding, accumulate in the organs, such as the ovaries and the bone marrow. Is this something that you've come across as well? And that's something that it's the packaging, isn't it, that, that the mRNA is delivered in? So the way I kind of explain it to people, it's like swallowing the pizza box every time you eat the pizza and the box is not disintegrating in your body. Is that something that you've kind of come to, t- to understand as well? Or what is your take on the lipid nanoparticles? Right. So listeners will, I'm sure, want to listen to Joe Rogan and um, uh, Dr. Malone, he's actually one of the, the people who really devised these lipid nanoparticles, so he knows them well. But the lipid nanoparticles uh, have been uh, under publication as a delivery mechanism for several years. There were papers came, coming out of China. There was one distinctly, I remember, that came out of China. Uh, and I believe the first author is uh, Ning and colleagues, uh, demonstrating t- in 2018, the lipid nanoparticles uh, absolutely accumulate in ovaries, adrenal glands, and testicles. Uh, they accumulate in organs that take up lipids because you know they're producing steroid hormones. And that's the reason why those organs produce steroid hormones. Uh, and there's a, a great figure showing exactly where these hyperconcentrate. So uh, during the Pfizer development program, uh, the Japan authorities asked Pfizer uh, to do a biodistribution study in animals of where the lipid nanoparticles go. So so not loaded with messenger RNA, just loaded with a radio tracer, and they uh, provided uh, an injection of, um, of lipid nanoparticles. Let me see, the lights just went off here. And um, in, in, in animals to see where, uh, the, where they went in the human body. And the, um, the, the answer was that they went... Um, uh, uh, throughout the body over the 48 hours, and they started to wash out of major organ systems, except for the one organ system that didn't was the ovaries. And the ovaries went straight up at 48 hours, and that's where the, the study was terminated. And everybody's really started to get an uneasy feeling of, oh, wait a minute, you know, lipid nanoparticles loaded with messenger RNA, coding for the dangerous spike protein, now accumulating. And we know from the prior Chinese studies, that accumulates in the corpus luteum layer of the ovaries. And as the spike protein is produced in the rough endoplasmic reticulum of the cytosol of these cells, the spike protein is not supposed to be there. 
So it has damaging effects. It goes on the cell surface. The body immediately recognizes that foreign. And so the body attacks its own tissues because it's trying to fight off this foreign protein that's not supposed to be there. Uh, and then it's picked up uh, by the bloodstream and it circulates widely in the bloodstream. Uh, in a paper by Alana Ogata and colleagues showed that it circulates uh, for two weeks on average measurable in, in quantities that are pretty large. And in one subject in the Ogata study, circulated for 29 days, 29 days of circulatory spike protein. The spike protein is proven uh, to cause neurologic damage, proven to damage the heart, proven in papers by Zhang and colleagues, and I'm a co-author on these, to damage uh, blood vessels and cause blood clotting. Like it's unequivocal, that's what the spike protein does. So this, uh, these vaccines have a mechanism of action that has an unprecedented uh, aspect of danger to it of tissue damage. And uh, it's no surprise that people feel so sick after these vaccines. It's no surprise that uh, they're coming in uh, days or weeks later with heart damage, with neurologic damage, paralysis, blood clots. Uh, the list goes on and on. We've never seen products uh, with this type of uh, safety profile. Uh, and it's extraordinary. And, and people feel pressured to take the vaccines. And at the same time, they know they're being pressured to be injured by the mechanism of the vaccine. It's, it's beyond Beyond words, isn't it? It's it's there is no words for this sort of thing. So people that that if it's accumulating in the ovaries, this is I'm assuming going to have effect on pregnancy, on fertility in the future. No, we don't know. Um, okay. uh, right now, there's no signals. It's too early. Obviously, we're only been at this a year. But you can imagine. Let's just say that there's some injury with shot number one, and then there's some injury to shot number two. And now there's going to be shot number three at six months, but then that's probably going to be moved into shot four just three months after that, which each injection, uh, a paper by Bruce Patterson published uh, the end of September, now a recent one by Banzel and colleagues, show that the spike protein almost certainly accumulates in the human body, uh, in the extracellular space, then within monocytes or, or cells that are trying to clear it out for over a year. Patterson showed with the respiratory illness in one patient was up to, up to 15 months. Can you imagine if this is the case, that we have fully the S1 and the S2 segment installed in the human body after vaccination for over a year, but now we're giving uh, injections uh, more frequently than a year. We never give the human body a chance to clear out the spike protein. And what if there's toxicities due to accumulation of spike protein, ultimately neurogenitive disease, heart disease. Uh, there's one paper... Uh, from China showing that the spike protein, the S2 segment, which is actually in the body after vaccination, that the S2 segment interacts with two cancer genes. One is the P53 gene, which is a, it governs, uh, on, uh, governs over certain uh, uh, cancers. Uh, uh, for instance, I saw a patient today who had melanoma and she didn't want to take the vaccine. And, and I said, yeah, you know, repeated doses of the vaccine in theory uh, could put you at risk for the disease you've already had, that's melanoma, where we're actually interacting with the tumor suppressor gene. The other gene that's influenced by the S2 segment is the BRCA or BRCA gene. Women will recognize that as the breast cancer gene, the gene related to uh, your, you know, female reproductive cancers. You know, without uh, having any long-term study for safety and having all this negative information pour in on the spike protein. We've actually had negative information pour in on the messenger RNA uh, in two papers now by Kara Gokulis and myself uh, examining the messenger RNA 
and particularly the three, the three prime and five prime nucleoside analog caps, it looks like this messenger RNA stays around in the body far longer than we thought it ever did. And we know that now because that one person actually had measurable spike protein uh, 29 days afterwards. Obviously, there must be messenger RNA that keeps producing the spike protein because otherwise human body clears out proteins, at least out of the bloodstream within a day or so for almost everything. So we have a setup. We basically have a recipe for disaster for people who continue to take these injections uh, from shot one to shot two, it's thought to be 80 fold more reactogenic. We don't know from shot two to booster if it's more reactogenic, but I can tell you my anecdotal experience is that these boosters are even more loaded with acute side effects than shot number two. And I think it's going to keep going and going because of this priming that's going on. It's called pathogenic priming, that this priming is going on and we keep uh, patients keep getting these uh, injections. And sadly, uh, all the injections are experimental. Uh, all of yeah. them are under research and, and people don't want them, but they feel forced into taking them. And so as, more, as large numbers of people become chronically ill, uh, at some point in time, one would wonder, is there enough regret or if there's enough resistance that this isn't going to happen? We're heading for, in the UK, come in April, we were going to have upwards of 100,000 um, staff leaving our NHS service because not wanting this, around about 80,000. So imagine when these kick in and, and the illnesses possibly do come without the staff here to support us. It's, it, it's as you say, it's heading for a, for a storm. Is it fair to say then, this is a mass experiment on human beings. Is that fair to say? Well, that? it is a clinical, it's a clinical investigation. It's a clinical investigation that's not going too well. Uh, and clinical investigations must be stopped if there's excessive safety concerns. And we had excessive safety concerns in our program starting January 22nd. We had enough data then to shut it down. We had excess deaths. We had 182 deaths. Uh, our typical tolerance for the whole country in vaccination is about 150 a year, no more than 50 a product. We already had 182. We should have shut it down in February. Only, with only 27 million Americans vaccinated, should have been shut down as being unsafe. Uh, but no data safety monitoring board was there. No one at our CDC and FDA uh, made the call. And so patients kept getting vaccinated. Now we have this paper that came in by Spiro Pantazatos and Hervé Seligman from uh, Molecular Imaging and Neuropathology and the New York State Psychiatric Institute, the Department of Psychiatry at Columbia University. Medical Center, and they have analyzed the U.S. Uh, census data as well as the uh, vaccine uh, registry administration schedule, and they've come up with, with estimates. And in their abstract, they've concluded that um, that between February and August of 2021, 146 to 187 thousand Americans have died after receiving the vaccines. Yes. I mean, this is extraordinary compared to VAERS at the time. They think the underreporting factor is 20, which is 20. So our VAERS or vaccine adverse event reporting system produces a yellow box report. You may be familiar with this. It has uh, yellow boxes to it, but similar to your yellow card system. And we know some countries outside the United States use our system. Uh, so, uh, you know, so if someone reported uh, an injury and they're in Bermuda and it's Pfizer, Pfizer probably is going to report through our system. And uh, so we know that about half of what's on the red box report are domestic uh, uh, cases and then half are ex-US. Can you imagine at a 20-fold, if we're at 20,000 deaths in VAERS and, and 10,000 are truly Americans and we put a 20X on that, 
That means right now we're at 200,000 lives lost with the vaccine. Now, if we take the, um, the uh, COVID-19 deaths, people have said, well, COVID-19 is a bad illness. Uh, we're at 800,000 deaths uh, due to COVID-19. Our CDC uh, basically has told us that fewer than 10% of them are actually really due to COVID, that 90% have other significant, potentially fatal illnesses that played a role. I mean, we had this a great example. We had uh, former Secretary of State Colin Powell, where he took the vaccine. He had multiple myeloma. It's pretty clear he had terminal multiple myeloma, form of a blood cancer. He gets admitted with COVID and he dies. Well, you know, did he die of COVID or was he going to die of multiple myeloma a month later? The average person dying of COVID-19 in the United States is 83 years old. They've actually outlived the average life expectancy. So we know that those deaths that we have of those 800,000, that uh, well, uh, the, clearly 90% of them are like that, where they basically had this other terminal disease. So that means 10% are really COVID alone, truly COVID alone. So what I'm telling you is that maybe 80,000 Americans, 80,000 have actually died of COVID, but now we have potentially 200,000 that have died after the vaccines. And people say, well, wait a minute, uh, the vaccines didn't have anything to do with it. Uh, but we said, listen, they, they occurred right afterwards. We know two analyses, one by Rose, one by McLaughlin, that 50% of the deaths occur within 48 hours, 80% of the deaths occur within a week, that they're really tightly related. You know, the dangerous mechanisms of action, the temporal relationship, the internal consistency with other non-fatal events like blood clots, paralysis, heart attacks, et cetera. And then the external consistency. What we're seeing in the United States is identical to what's being seen in the MHRA yellow card system, as well as the EU uh, um, uh, Euro database. So we have basically fulfilled all the epidemiologic tenets of causality. I'm an epidemiologist. I trained in epidemiology, one of the best universities in America. And I can tell you, I'm convinced that the vaccines are causing large numbers of deaths. And um, the concern here is, uh, is as high as I possibly can express. Every person going in for the next, next shot is risking their lives. And people say, well, look, it's rare. It's rare. Well, you know, everything's rare when there's a big denominator, but it's occurring in large numbers. I mean, it's true. You know, of the soldiers who went off to World War II, death was rare. It's true but there still were large numbers of deaths. That, that's the point. And so uh, uh, trying to divide by a denominator doesn't make it a softer blow. And at this point in time, we've exceeded all boundaries of safety. We've exceeded all boundaries that would be ethical or um, moral. And in my view, we need to shut it down. Yeah, it's even more rare if you don't get it at all. Um, so a couple more questions before you go. Are you a, you talked about faith, Christianity and going on that show earlier. Are you a man of faith and it has that played in any, is that helping you in any way to get through this? Because there's something other has to go on here. This just seems like a, like a problem of, of it feels like a, a real dark cloud of, of something over here. And are you grabbing onto something else to help you support you in a way? I know I am. I know many, many other people are, whether it's religious faith or just belief in something else, belief in good people, the decency of people. How are you, is that playing a part in kind of how you're kind of getting through some of this? Yeah, I join many in our circles in believing that we're in spiritual times, uh, that we're in an epic battle of good versus evil. And in these epic battles throughout history, it's always been a small number of people representing good and a large number of people representing evil. 
that to that small group, they have eyes to see and ears to hear. They have warm hearts. To the larger group, they have scales over their eyes, and they have basically no compassion at this point in time. And uh, there is a basically, uh, effectively, a mass psychosis that's occurred. That mass psychosis has taken over a large number of minds. It's in the courts, it's in the schools, it's in the employers. There is wide-scale corruption and lack of due process, lack of civil liberties. Uh, it's, it's come over. In Australia, they're walking the, each other into concentration camps, and they're walking into them. They're not kicking and screaming. Uh, very similar to Nazi Germany. You know, Nazi Germany, the doctors were co-opted. And at the very end, people walked into these gas chambers. You know, people voluntarily gave up their children in eugenics programs. It was this kind of graduated walk that occurred. And then it wasn't until, you know, there was incredible um, turmoil and then ultimately a, a new dawn and, uh, and then a realization of what happened. And the doctors were just, they looked and they saw the blood on their hands and they couldn't believe it. Uh, we're, we're running into the similar times here. Uh, Alex Jones's show, I'm going to be on tomorrow, by the way, called InfoWars is the best name show ever because we are in a war of information. And I think our goal is to keep it at the level of a war of information. We don't want a physical war. We don't want to be in Australia shooting rubber bullets at each other and putting each other in camp for no reason. You know, this is a manageable viral respiratory illness. If tomorrow we dropped all the vaccines and we did nothing, we dropped every single um, lockdown, we did no measures, we just returned to normal life. Believe it or not, we, you know, we would just manage through it. We'd manage through it like any other medical problem. No difference, no difference. That, mean, that means if we had zero public health response, it would, you know, as a doctor talking to you right now from a hospital, it would all be the same. We would just take care of sick patients, which we do anyway. And we'd be a whole lot better off than all the other occurrences, the uh, suicides, the depression, the alcoholism, the people cut out of work, the economic problems that have come along with the stuff that no one's factored, not many, not no one, but not many people are factoring, certainly not the mainstream media. Before you go, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. I know you're tired. Um, Where can people find your work and connect with you before you go? You can find me on my um, America Out Loud Talk Radio, the McCullough Report, and also uh, the Truth for Health Foundation, truthforhealth.org, there's are resources. People contact me about treatment protocols, list the doctors, uh, et cetera. And then um, for uh, legal travel IT support, I do now uh, uh, have a professional social media support, which I need nowadays for survival. Uh, you can go to Give, Send, Go, Give, Send, Go, and then just look up uh, McCullough. You'll find one operational Give, Send, Go site uh, and that one's valid. Um, I've checked it. It's a Christian organization. And I've talked to the people there and all the other fundmes out there with my name on them are fake. Don't, don't donate to them. Those are going to nefarious people, but give, send, go. You'll see me on a stage talking to a lot of people. That'll be the picture ID that um, I was presenting at one of the Reawaken America programs. So it's terrific to be on your program. You know, my heart is broken for the United Kingdom. My wife has cousins that live uh, just outside of uh, Cambridge. And we know England is such a wonderful place, but right now it sounds horrible. In the United States, our neighbor, Canada, uh, you know, part of uh, you, you know, the, 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 um, the British empire is horrible. And we've just recently extracted my wife's parents out of Canada after two years of, of brutal lockdown 
they are 88 and 98. They don't have a car. They don't have any relatives in town. And they've suffered greatly. And uh, for no reason, for no reason, they've, they've played by every rule. Uh, my wife's parents have taken the vaccines. They've done everything they're supposed to. They have suffered greatly. We finally pulled them out. We pulled them out and we're going to figure out the next steps in the United States. In the United States, there's gradations of freedom. There are gradations of freedom. I was in New York recently and I was asked to show a vaccine card uh, as I was going into a building. Now that building has no standing. They have no standing to ask for a vaccine card. We didn't vote for that. Nobody agreed to that. Uh, and here in Texas, um, I'll go out uh, tonight if I want to, to any building uh, anywhere in the uh, city or state nobody's going to ask me for a vaccine card. Um, many won't even uh, consider wearing masks. So I'm in a healthcare setting right now. So I wear a mask when I interact uh, with patients. And, uh, you know, as um, I'm here, the clinic is now done for the day. Um, I don't have a mask on to talk to you. I think it's relatively immaterial. I don't put, uh, uh, you know, much faith into masks whatsoever, but I don't fight them either. I just don't think it's a big deal. Um, but I do uh, have great concerns about patients not being adequately treated from COVID-19. And I have enormous concerns about people being forced to take vaccinations, which are causing great harm to a small number of people. But that small number of people will grow over time as more and more take the vaccines. Well, thank you for your time, Dr. P. Uh, thank you for so much. And okay. everything you've done, you should be very proud of yourself and everything you're doing. And thank you for standing thank up for, for people when they don't have the the ability to speak the way you do, because we do really appreciate it. And you've made a massive difference. And, and over here, we've seen a huge difference just from the Rogan show totally. So thank you so much. Thank and you. thank you for your time, mate. I appreciate thank it. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take Bye -bye. care. Bye-bye.